Lord be with you. Let us pray. Thy word is a lantern unto my feet and a light unto my paths. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we are in Romans chapter 3 today. Incidentally, next week is our last class before the summer break. So bear that in mind. Sunday school has already taken a recess. Somebody asked me recently, why does Sunday school take a break um, so early? Part of the reason is we have difficulty getting teachers, uh, quite frankly. That's, that's the main reason, is that everybody starts to leave town after graduations and that sort of thing, and so it's very difficult for us to have teachers. So we um, came to a close of the Sunday school year this past Sunday, but this class will continue on today and next week, and then we'll take our break for the summer. At any rate, we are in Romans chapter 3 today. We're going to begin at verse 21, and we're going to go ahead and read through the end of the chapter, concentrating in particular on two verses, verses 25 and 26. So if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We come in this closing section of Romans chapter 3 to one of the most important themes not only in the writings of the Apostle Paul, but really in the New Testament. And that is this theme of faith. In these few verses that I read to you, Paul mentions faith over and over again. Faith is absolutely central to the Christian life. Paul mentions it, as I said, over and over again, eight times in particular in verses 21 through 31. Now, in order to understand the significance of faith in the writings of Paul and in his theology, it's important just to remember what Paul has been saying up to this point. Sometimes when we take these verses apart and we spend so much time on one or two verses, we can lose the flow of the argument. But Paul has really been driving home this, this huge argument that you and I are not in a right relationship with God. That's how the letter begins that we're under the wrath of God, that God's judgment is coming upon us because we have turned our backs on God and we have broken relationship with Him. So we are not in a right relationship with God. Moreover, Paul says there is absolutely nothing that you and I can do that we can offer to God, no acts of work or righteousness that you and I can offer to God that He might accept us and that we might be restored to a right relationship with Him. There's nothing we can do. But the good news, Paul says, is that God has made available to us an alien righteousness. Now, that is to say, a righteousness outside of ourselves, 
a foreign righteousness. It's not a righteousness that we have. It is a righteousness that is imparted to us, that is given to us. That's why I call it an alien righteousness. And this righteousness, this right relationship with God comes to us by means of the work of Christ, by means of his atoning death, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his ascension. This righteousness comes to us by the work of Christ, which is a matter of sheer grace. Because we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It costs us nothing, although it was costly for Christ. But the question is this, how do we receive that gift? How do we receive the work of Christ? How do we receive this alien righteousness? And that's what Paul is talking about here in these verses. We receive it by faith. Basically, what Paul is saying is that the work of Christ, while it is sufficient to atone for the sins of the world, is only efficient. That is to say, it only makes a difference if we actually receive it as individuals. So it is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. That's what we say every Sunday. Jesus' death upon the cross was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice. Nothing else needs to be done. Everything that was necessary has been done. But in order for you and I to benefit from that, it is something that we have to receive. I put it this way. I've sometimes said it's like somebody putting a million dollars into your bank account. Now, that can make a big difference in your life. But only if you draw on the account. Only if you take some sort of action. Otherwise, it's there, but it makes no difference whatsoever. Well, there is a sense in which Christ's death upon the cross was sufficient for the sins of the whole world. But unless you and I appropriate that personally, it will make no difference. And Paul says the means by which we appropriate this is by faith. This is why the author of Hebrews says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, when you talk about faith, sounds like a simple subject, but it is anything but simple. So before we go any further, I want to talk about the nature of faith. Paul says faith is absolutely essential if we're going to be brought back into a right relationship with God, if we are going to appropriate the work of Christ for our own lives. But many people don't understand what biblical faith really is. They're confused by this. I think part of the reason is when we talk about faith, we talk about, for example, somebody doing something in good faith or something doing somebody in, in bad faith. And, and that confuses people as to what faith really is when the Bible speaks of it, the kind of faith that Paul is talking about here, the kind of faith that is saving. Perhaps the best way to begin talking about what faith is is by clearing the decks and making it clear what faith is not. Contrary to popular belief, faith is not a subjective feeling. Now, that's what many people think. People think subjective feeling is it's something personal that somebody might have, that you have your own personal faith. Many people believe that faith is what you have when you don't have evidence. Just believing in something because there are no facts to support your belief. What I want to suggest to you today is that every single one of us, every single day of our lives, exercises faith in small things and in large things. Every single one of us, even the atheists, exercises faith. So don't think that faith stands in opposition to fact, quite the contrary. I watched as you came in today and you got your lunches and you all sat down in your chairs and I noticed that not a single one of you tested the chair to see whether or not it was going to hold you. Now, I'm sure at one point in your lives, you've all seen someone sit in a chair or on a stool and watch it collapse. And if you're like me, you find that sort of thing absolutely hilarious. I mean, that's why we watch the Three Stooges after all. It's because that sort of slapstick comedy is funny as long as they don't get hurt. But not a single one of you tested the chairs in spite of the fact that you know that chairs do from time to time collapse. Why didn't you test the chairs? Because based on your past experience, week after week, you come into this place and you sit in those chairs 
And based upon your past experience, you've come to the conclusion that they are trustworthy. They are capable of sustaining you. But there is no guarantee of that. But your faith is based upon evidence. Now, how many of you believe that your spouse loves you? How do you know for sure? Well, you cannot know absolutely. Well, you say, well, my spouse does some nice things for me. Well, he may do some nice things for you just to keep you quiet. It's been known to happen, by the way. I'll just let you know. But on the basis of your past experience, on the basis of evidence, you trust. So faith is something that we all exercise. And big things and small things, you get into the automobile and you turn it on and you drive. You expect it to start up. You're actually surprised if it doesn't start up. That's because based on your past experience, you trust it. So I want you to understand that when we're talking about faith, we're talking about something that people, every single one of us, exercises every single day of our lives in large things and in small things. It is not subjective. Christian faith is based upon objective reality. This is one of the reasons why I always emphasize that Christianity is an historical faith. We don't believe simply because it's nice to believe. We believe because the evidence indicates that Jesus Christ died and was raised on the third day of the week. And on the basis of that, we place our trust in the promises of God. So faith is not a subjective thing. It is based upon objective truth. It's based upon evidence. So faith is not subjective, nor is faith the same thing as credulity. What is credulity? Well, I would call this hope against hope. It's believing in something because you earnestly want it to be true. And there are many people who think that that's what faith is. It's something that you just latch on to because you can't bear the thought of it not being true. It's based more upon fear than anything else. But that's not what the Bible means by faith either. It doesn't mean just a subjective experience. It doesn't mean just hope against hope, nor does it mean a positive mental attitude. You know, optimism. There are some people out there who just believe that the glass is always half full, as opposed to others who believe that the glass is always half empty. And you might think, well, the optimist, well, that's a person who has faith. Not necessarily. So if these are common understandings of faith in the world today, but they're not what Paul means by faith, what exactly is biblical faith? If it is so essential that we cannot see the kingdom of God without it, that we cannot please God without it, that we cannot be justified without it, then what exactly is faith as Paul understands it? This thing that is so essential, so essential to his teaching. Charles Haddon Spurgeon had a wonderful definition of faith. This is a simple definition, but I think it sort of captures what Paul is talking about. Spurgeon said, faith is believing that Christ is what he is said to be, and that he will do what he has promised to do, and then you expect this of him. Now you think about that. That's a wonderful definition of faith. Faith is believing that Christ is who he is said to be. And that he will do what he has promised to do. And then you go ahead and expect that of him. Now, if I say to you that I'm going to be here next week to teach this class, barring any unforeseen circumstances, you expect me to show up here. Well, that's exactly what Spurgeon is talking about. It's believing that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, that he will indeed save those who believe in him, and then you expect that he's going to carry it out. You're you're just waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. Reminds me of a story from the Napoleonic Wars. Story goes that Napoleon was engaged in a great battle on one occasion, and as the shells were screaming overhead, his horse reared 
and the emperor was almost unseated. Now, of course, that would have been an absolute disaster for the French if Napoleon had been killed or if the horse had toppled on top of him and crushed him beneath it. But apparently there was a young soldier, a sergeant, standing right next to the horse. And when the horse reared, he grabbed the bridle and the reins and got the horse under control. And Napoleon, without missing a beat, looked down at the man and said, thank you, Lieutenant. Now he's wearing sergeant stripes, but he said, thank you, Lieutenant. And the young man turned and returned to his unit. And as he did, he was tearing off the chevrons from his shirt. And he went and joined the ranks of the officers. Now, that was on the basis of what? On the basis of the emperor's word. See, he trusted the emperor, who he was, what he had said he would do, and then he acted on it. That's biblical faith, folks. It's not just hoping against hope. It's not just optimism. It is trusting that God is who he said he is, that he will do what he has promised to do, and then you act on that basis as though it is already taking place. Theologians sometimes say that faith contains three elements, biblical faith. This is why the author of Hebrews describes faith as the assurance of things not yet seen. It's like a, a title deed. If somebody leaves you a piece of property, leaves you an estate, I don't know how many of you are going to see the Downton Abbey movie, but apparently, apparently, Lady Grantham gets left a villa in the south of France. Now, let's say somebody leaves you a villa in the south of France. You've never seen it, but the deed get del gets delivered to your house. That deed is the assurance of the things hoped for. It is the guarantee of the things not yet seen. You haven't yet seen it, but it is the assurance that you are, in fact, the owner. You possess it. And that's what faith is for us. It is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the guarantee, the evidence of the things that are not yet seen. Three elements to faith that you need to understand. They're indicated by Latin terms, but I'll sort of explain them to you. The first word is notitia or noticia. Literally what it means is knowledge. So all faith is based on knowledge some sort of belief in someone or something. This is what we would call knowledge of faith's object. In other words, if you're going to have faith, you have to believe in Christ. You have to believe in God, just as Spurgeon said, you have to believe that he really is who he claimed to be. That's the first thing, knowledge. But there's a second element to true faith, and that is a census or agreement with the claims of the faith. You might describe this as a heart response. And then there's a third element, and that third element is what we call fiducia. And it means commitment. So think of this in terms of the creed. Every Sunday here at St. Philip's, whether we're doing morning prayer or we're doing Holy Communion, we stand up and we recite the words of one of the creeds. If it's morning prayer Sunday or it's a baptism Sunday, we stand and recite the words of the ancient baptismal creed, the Apostles' Creed. If it's a Holy Communion Sunday, we stand up and we recite the words of the Nicene Creed. But either way, we're standing up and we're saying a number of things. We're saying, I believe. I believe. Now, that creed is the content of the Christian faith. When the church hammered out the creeds, they were basically saying this is the minimum of what must be believed in order to be a Christian. Now, there are a lot of other things to be believed as well, but in order to be a Christian, you must at least believe this. Now, you can be a skeptic and understand that that is the content of the Christian faith. In other words, you may not be a believer, but you understand that Christians believe that there is one God, the Father, the Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. That there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, his only son, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, buried, and the third day rose again. You may believe that Christians subscribe to the belief in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. You may believe that Christians, you may, or at least understand that Christians believe 
that Christ will come again to judge the quick and the dead. You may understand that that's the knowledge or that is the content of the Christian faith, but you don't agree with it. So simply knowing what Christians believe is not the same thing as biblical faith. You need the ascensus as well. That is to say, I not only understand that's what Christians believe, that is what I believe. I'm in agreement with that. But even that, you see, is not true biblical faith. True biblical faith is not just believing what the church teaches, and even believing that is true in your own life. Christian faith, like that soldier who was tearing off his chevrons, acts upon it. You apply the principles of that faith, the implications of that faith, to your life. So think of it in terms of a marriage. That's another illustration. In order to have a marriage, really there are three things. A happy marriage, let's put it that way. In order to have a genuine happy marriage, three things are necessary. First of all, you have to get to know each other, don't you? Now, sometimes that happens when you're introduced by mutual friends. Today, I'm just astonished to see how many people meet each other on dating services and dating apps and that sort of thing. That's a little foreign to me. Sometimes you meet through a common experience. You went to the same schools or whatever it may be. But there's always that point in every relationship which we call the courtship. I know people will talk about love at first sight. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't believe in that. Now, there is like at first sight. There's attraction at first sight. There may even be lust at first sight, but rarely is there love at first sight. Because the basis of any relationship is knowing each other. You've got to get to know each other. So in a marriage, there's always that period where you're introduced and then you get to know each other. Now, sometimes the courtship is short, sometimes the courtship is long, but there is that point where you get to know each other and you begin to realize whether or not you're compatible. But then if there's going to be a marriage, a true and happy marriage, the next thing has to happen. What has to happen? There has to be a movement of the heart. You get to know the individual, the man or the woman, but then your heart is moved. You're attracted to them, not just in terms of their personality, but you're drawn to them. Now, all of those things are necessary, both of them, for a happy marriage but they do not a marriage make, do they? In other words, you can get to know somebody, you can even get to love somebody, but in order for there to be a marriage, there has to be something else. What does there have to be? There has to be a commitment. There has to be a wedding where you promise that you will forsake all others and be faithful only unto each other as long as you both shall live. Well, that's what it is with faith. There has to be that knowledge. There has to be that movement of the heart. And then there has to be that commitment. The same is true in the Christian life. That's what Paul means when he talks about faith. That's what he means when we're saved by grace through faith. That's the kind of faith that he is talking about. Now, you might be asking the question, well, where do you get this kind of faith? If I need to have faith in order to please God, if I need to have faith in order to be saved, and it's this kind of faith, where does that faith come from? Paul is clear. We don't manufacture it on our own. Where does it come from? Well, this is the interesting thing. Faith itself is a gift. It is a gift from God. Otherwise, it would be a work. So faith is a gift from God. But it's interesting how that gift comes to us. John Calvin said it comes to us through the Word, through the Word of God. Here's how Calvin put it. He said, faith is defined by God's Word. That is to say, the Word of God tells us what true faith is. Faith is born of God's Word. And faith is sustained by God's word. Now, that was not Calvin coming up with that. Calvin was simply echoing what the Apostle Paul himself says. Keep your finger there in Romans 3, and you skip ahead to Romans chapter 10 for just a minute. You'll find that that's exactly what Paul says about faith. 
Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 13. This is a wonderful distillation of what he's saying seven chapters earlier. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, that's good news. But then how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? See, that's the noticia. That's, that's the knowledge part. In order to believe in him, they have to know him. But how are they to know him if they've never heard of him? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ or the word of God. So that's how faith comes to us. You may be in a church service or you may be in a Bible study and you're hearing the word of God, whether it's being expounded by a teacher or whether you're reading it yourself. And as you hear the word, something begins to happen within you. You begin to understand, all right, this is the teaching of the word of God. But then you begin to experience what Charles and John Wesley described as that strange warming of the heart. You begin to realize that this is not just what the Word teaches, this is what you actually believe. And the more you study the Word, the more you begin to live it in your own life. So Calvin was right. Faith is defined by God's Word. This is what true faith is. Faith is born of God's word, for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And faith, if your faith is going to be robust, strong, in the midst of life's difficulties and storms, it is sustained by God's word. If you feel that your faith is weak today, and we all have those moments when we feel like we really don't have a robust faith, what's the best thing that you can do to grow your faith? What's the best thing you can do to nourish your faith? Read the word. Be men and women of the book. Read it in season and out of season. That is the most important thing that you can do as a Christian, because without faith, you cannot please God, and yet faith only comes from the word of God. So if you are not in the word, even if you understand the content of the faith, even if you believe it, your faith is going to be sorely tested when the storms of life erupt. So faith comes by hearing, hearing comes by the word of God. And it is this faith, Paul says, that saves us. Now go back to Romans chapter 3 for just a moment. Because Paul puts it here in a very specific way in verses 25 and 26. He talks about faith in Christ, but specifically he talks about faith in Christ's blood. So it's faith in Christ's blood. That's very important because it's possible for a person to have faith in Jesus' teaching. You know, there are many people out there in the world today who believe that Jesus is a great moral exemplar, an example for us to follow, someone to model our lives after. There are other people out there that believe that Jesus was a very wise individual, and he said some very important things that if you apply them to your life, you'll be happier and healthier. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says when we talk about having faith in Christ, it's not faith so much in what Jesus said as it is faith in what Jesus did. That's the kind of faith, that's the object of our faith that has the ability to save us. Let me read verses 21 through 26 again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to us. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We push our faith in Christ's blood, which has been set forth as a propitiation for our sins. Faith in his blood. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was a great teacher. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was a moral individual. If you're going to be saved, if you're going to be brought into a right relationship with God, you have to have faith in what Christ did in becoming a propitiation for our sins. We talked about that word propitiation last week. There are three words here that Paul uses, and all three of them, all precious to us as Christians in terms of our salvation, in the way that they describe the work of Christ, and all three of them have to do with the shedding of the Lord's blood. The first word that Paul uses there is that word propitiation. We looked at it last week. It means to turn aside wrath. How was it that Christ turned aside the wrath of God that was coming against us? Because God was just and holy and righteous. He did that by the shedding of his blood. For the wages of sin is death. That's what we all deserve. But there was one who took our place on the cross, who paid the debt, who paid the price for our sins, and in so doing, took the wrath of God upon himself that you and I might go free. The innocent suffering for the guilty. Look at the biblical reference, Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to skip around in the scriptures here for a reason. It's because I want you to understand this is not just the teaching of Paul. This is the teaching of the church. The author of Hebrews says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not this, of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What's being referred to there? We talked about this before. We said that once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the tabernacle or he would go into the temple, into that most holy of places, the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was located, where God dwelt in symbolic glory there on the mercy seat above the outstretched wings of the cherubim, sitting there in righteousness, in holiness. And we said that the priest had to make a sacrifice for his own sins before he made a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Otherwise, he would go into the presence of God and be struck down. But the author of Hebrews says, when Christ appeared, he became the great high priest, and he entered into the presence of God, bringing the people along with him. But he did that, how? Not by offering a sacrifice on behalf of his own sins, but by offering himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. So he became the propitiation. He also became the redemption. Peter in his first epistle says, it is not with worthless things like silver and gold that you have been redeemed. But you were bought, you were purchased, he said, with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. We've talked about this earlier. We said that Sin has a number of effects upon our life. One of the things that it does is it enslaves us. And we all know this to be true from our own lives. You can all relate to the idea, the very things I want to do, I don't do. And the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. That's what the Apostle Paul described his own life. And you and I can all relate to that. And that's because we're enslaved to sin. We know what we ought to do, but somehow we cannot do it. And we know what we ought not to do, but somehow we still find ourselves doing it. We've become so frustrated with us, and we want to be freed from the shackles. And Paul says the only way that can happen is if God comes into the marketplace and buys us back. 
buys us back from slavery to sin. But what's the price that has to be paid? It is the price, he said, of his own sin. He said, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, and the price was Christ's own blood. And finally, Paul speaks of our justification, our being declared righteous. Remember, said that was a legal term. Propitiation was the language of ancient religion. Justification is the language of the courtroom where the gavel falls and we are declared to be not guilty. doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it means in terms of our standing before the law, we are not under condemnation. But how does that take place? Even that, Paul says, happens as a consequence of Christ's blood. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Why all this emphasis on the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the death of Christ? Precisely because that is the one thing that the world finds so offensive. The world finds it offensive that we talk about the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. I used to have a lady in my last parish. There's, she was a real interesting woman. But she used to come up all the time and say to me, blood, blood, blood. I'm tired of hearing about the blood of Christ. Where's the joy, she said. Well, the problem was she didn't understand there is no joy without the shed blood of Christ. There's no propitiation without the shed blood of Christ. There's no justification without the shed blood of Christ. There's no redemption without the shed blood of Christ. And this was a woman who'd been a cradle Episcopalian her whole life and somehow must have missed the words of the liturgy. Because the whole communion service is about what? The shed blood of Christ. Tell me if these words sound familiar to you. And we earnestly desire thy fatherly goodness mercifully to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, most humbly beseeching thee to grant that by the merits and death of thy son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in his what? Blood. We and all thy whole church may obtain remission of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. Sound familiar to you? It should. We say it almost every single Sunday. That's what we're reenacting. And it is only by faith in his shed blood that we enjoy the remission of sins and all the other benefits, the peace that comes from a relationship restored with God. It all comes from his passion. Just think about those words for just a moment. You see right there, beginning at the yellow section, the death, the blood, and the remission of our sins. That's exactly how it works. Christ dies, he sheds his blood, and through our faith in that act that he performed on our behalf, we have the remission of sins. We have the remission of sins. This is not just the teaching, as I said, of the New Testament. Actually, the whole of the Old Testament was a foreshadowing of this. That's why I say to you, you want to know what the Bible is? The Bible really is a simple message. It's a simple book. It's got one author and one theme. It's got many writers, but it's got one author, the Holy Spirit, and has one theme from Genesis the whole way through to the end of the book of Revelation. And what is that one theme? It is the saving work of Jesus Christ. Now you say, no, wait a minute, that can't be true. Jesus Christ is not even present in the Old Testament. He doesn't appear on the scene until we get to Matthew. Is that true? Actually, all the stories in the Old Testament, all of the law, all of the prophets, all of those are pointing us forward to Jesus Christ 
and what he had come, again, not merely to teach or say, but to do. I wonder if you've ever noticed that when we say the creed, we don't say anything. When we talk about Jesus' life, we never say a single word about Jesus' parables. We never say a single word about Jesus' three-year ministry of teaching and healing. When we say the creed, we talk about Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary, suffering under Pontius Pilate, being crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day rising again. That is the whole of Jesus' life. It is distilled into that, what we call the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And that's because that is the heart of the message. If you get that and you don't get anything else, you know, people say, well, I find the book of Revelation very confusing. That's fine. So do I. But the point is that if you get this part about the blood of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, and you place your faith in the shed blood of Christ, you believe that that is what he came to do, your heart has been warmed, and you believe that that is true for your life, that he not only died for the sins of the whole world, but he died for your sins, and you place your trust in that, and you act and live your life on that basis, then my friends, that is enough. It's not everything, but that is enough. That is what must be believed in order to be a believer. I want to take you back to the Old Testament, to the very beginning, to Genesis chapter 22. And to one of the most poignant questions found anywhere in Scripture. This is the story, of course, of Abraham, the great patriarch, and his son Isaac. Many of you probably know the story. Abraham had been called out of ignorance. He had been living in paganism. God called him and decided to make Abraham the father of a great nation. And that through this one nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And of course, Abraham was the father of what nation? The father of the Jewish nation. Now, when God called Abraham, Abraham, we're told, was an old man. He was married to a woman named Sarah, who we're told was barren. The way they are described in Scripture, and I've always said this is the most pitiful description of a couple. Abraham is described as being as good as dead. And Sarah is described as being well beyond childbearing age. Who wants to be introduced to somebody like that? Oh, this is my friend Sarah. She's well beyond childbearing age. And this is Abraham, and well, he's good as dead. But that's how we're introduced to these people in the scriptures. But God makes Abraham a promise. And we're told that Abraham believed. And God credited it to him as righteousness. Now, we're going to get to that later on because Paul is going to really capitalize on that whole theme. But the point is that God is true to his promise. Abraham, in spite of the fact that he's as good as dead, in spite of the fact that Sarah is well beyond childbearing age, she conceives. And she has a son. And that son is Isaac. And Abraham is thrilled. The impossible has become possible. But look at chapter 22. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, the son that I've given you as a gift, the son that you thought was impossible that I have given to you. I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, was that true? I mean, Abraham had just been told that he was to go and sacrifice his son. Abraham says to the servants, you stay here. The boy and I are going to go up there and worship, and we will come back to you. Well, if you're just reading the story at face value, you're thinking to yourself, well, one of you is coming back. <laughs> one of you is not coming back. That's not exactly true to say we will come back. Abraham should have said, I will come back. But apparently, Abraham trusted God. 
He knew that Abraham, God had made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the heaven, than the sand on the beach, and that he would be blessed through this son, Isaac. Apparently, he believed that if he had to offer up his son, God would resurrect him. It's a great act of faith, really, on the part of Abraham. So we read on. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, classic question of a child. Here am I, my son, Abraham responded. He said, behold, you have the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, even if Abraham believed that God could raise his son from the dead, can you imagine how that must have torn at a father's heart? He was going to have to take his own son's life. And his son is saying, I see you've got the fire, you've got the wood, where's the lamb? Now, sooner or later, Abraham's going to have to explain, you're the lamb, you're, you're the sacrifice. Now, children don't understand these great things. It would have crushed a son. But I want you to notice how Abraham responds. Abraham said, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb. Now, that is a foreshadowing of exactly what God was going to do in the person of Jesus Christ. You and I are standing not in a right relationship with God. We're standing under the judgment of God. A sacrifice has to be made in order for us to be reconciled, in order for the wrath of God to be propitiated, in order for us to be redeemed, in order for us to be declared justified in God's sight. And we can't offer the sacrifice. And so you look and you say, well, who will offer? Who will, who will supply the lamb that is necessary? And the answer comes back, God himself will supply the lamb. That is a picture of exactly what God did. And that's here in the very first book of the Bible. It's a foreshadowing of the things that are to come. And actually, the promise of the coming sacrifice was made even before this. I sometimes ask the question, it's a trick question, when was the story of Jesus' sacrifice first proclaimed in the Bible? And the answer is way back in Genesis chapter 3, where you have the story of the fall. You all know what happened. The man and the woman ate of the tree they were forbidden to eat from. When God finds out about this, he reminds them that the penalty for this is death. God asks Adam, what have you done? Adam says, it's not me. It's the woman that you gave me. She's the problem. The Lord turns to the woman and says, what have you done? She said, it's the serpent. And here's what God says to the serpent. Because you have done this, verse 14, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That is what we call the Proto-Evangelion, the first preaching of the gospel. The first promise that there was going to come a time when the serpent, the devil, would strike out against the seed of the woman, but ultimately the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That is exactly what Jesus Christ did. Again, on the cross, by his death, he defeated sin, death, and the devil. And that's not at the beginning of the Bible. That's the beginning of time. See a promise of this again when you get to Moses. Turn to Exodus again, another familiar story. You know these stories, but sometimes we read them in isolation. We forget that they are actually true historical events, but foreshadowing an even greater event that is to come. You know, when you read literature, sometimes there's a foreshadowing, just a hint of what probably is going to come in the future. Well, you've got that here. 
This is Exodus chapter 12. The Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, making bricks without straw. Their life was very difficult. But God had determined that he was going to deliver them out of their bondage. And he does this by sending a whole series of plagues upon the Egyptians. But Pharaoh refuses to relent and let the people go until the final plague is sent. And what's the final plague on Egypt? The death of the firstborn. The death of the firstborn. God promises that he is going to send the angel of death over the land of Egypt, and the firstborn of every house is going to die. And that would have meant the Israelites as well, the Hebrews, except for the fact that God provides a way for them to be delivered. And that's where we pick it up. Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute the judgments. I am the Lord, the blood. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Jesus is described as our Passover lamb. We say this is part of our liturgy. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. They sacrificed the lamb, took the blood of the lamb, put it over their doorpost, and when the angel passed through the land, he passed over the house with the blood. Well, Jesus is described as our Passover lamb. You see, all of that is a foreshadowing of the things that are to come. True for David as well. David in Psalm 51 in his great confession, knowing that he had killed Uriah, knowing that he had done this adulterous thing with Bathsheba, confesses his sin and he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Now you say, well, what is hyssop? Hyssop is a, is a shrub. How, how do you get cleansed with hyssop? What does that mean to be cleansed with hyssop? The hyssop branch is what the priest would use on the Day of Atonement when the lambs were slaughtered. He would dip the hyssop branch in the blood and then come out and sprinkle it on the people as a sign that their sins had been covered. So when David says, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean, what he means is the only way for me to be made right, the only way to atone for my sins is by blood. By blood. This is exactly what the prophet Isaiah, the greatest prophet in many respects in the Old Testament, was talking about, the shed blood of Christ. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah. This is a great passage. Most of you are probably familiar with it. It's known as the suffering servant. Isaiah 53. Now, you understand that Isaiah wrote this passage hundreds of years before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. Hundreds of years before Christ ever was born in Bethlehem. But here's what he says. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Now see what Isaiah is talking about there is Jesus Christ. Hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, he says he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the chastisement that was upon him brought us peace, for by his stripes we are healed. So this is Adam's expectation this is Moses' deliverance. This is David's hope. It's Isaiah's anticipation. And it finds its fulfillment in the words of John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, and that hinge between the Old Covenant and the New. In John chapter 1, we're told that John the Baptist was down there on the banks of the Jordan River. He was preaching repentance to the people, calling them to turn from their wickedness, to come down into the muddy waters of the Jordan, and to be baptized as a sign of their repentance. And one day, he sees Jesus Christ walking along the banks of that river, and he cries out for everyone to say, to hear, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To Jews, that would have meant that everything that they had grown up with was being fulfilled. They knew the story of Adam. They knew that God was going to send one who would be bruised by the enemy, but would crush the serpent's head. They knew that when the lamb's blood was placed over the lintel and they celebrated the Passover every year, that God would one day supply a perfect lamb. David knew that it was only by the blood that he could be cleansed from all his wickedness and his iniquities. And Isaiah looked forward as a prophet to that day when the perfect Lamb of God would arrive on the scene, that by his stripes we might be healed. And John saw Jesus, and that is what he said. He says, there it is. There's the Lamb of God. There's the one that when you place your faith in him and what he has done takes away the sin of the world. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans when he says, by faith in his blood. The whole of the Old Testament and all of the new is about one thing. It is about the saving work of Jesus Christ accomplished by his shed blood on the cross. It's not enough, folks, to believe that Jesus Christ is a good teacher. It's not enough to believe that Jesus Christ is a good moral exemplar. You must believe that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, shed his blood for your sins, that you who were far off might be brought near. There was a famous hymn writer in the 19th century. His name was Robert Lowry. And he wrote an old revival hymn, but it sums up exactly what Paul is talking about here in Romans. We don't sing it in our church, but we ought to. It goes like this, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood 
of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do you have that kind of faith? That's the faith that saves, my friends. Faith in what Christ has done on your behalf. You know that that is what the church teaches. But you know that it's true for your life. You know that Jesus has paid the price, not just for the sins of the whole world, but for your sins. And if you know that, have you committed your life to him? Have you invited him in as your Savior and as your Lord? And are you prepared to act on that, to live for him who died for you? That's the heart of Christianity. If you don't understand anything else, but you understand that, then my friends, you will one day be with Christ in heaven. What is required? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your word. It is a rich treasure to us. We thank you, Father, that in it we find everything that we need. I pray that we might be people of the book. We need to be people of faith. Without faith, we cannot please you, but faith comes from hearing, hearing from the word. It's not just faith. It is faith in the shed blood of Jesus. Help us to see what he has done for us. Help us to place our trust in him alone that we might be redeemed, that your wrath might be satisfied, that we might be made sons and daughters of God. Grant us to glory, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.